This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a big issue. I asked product designer Jessica Durkin how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. Having a diverse workforce basically helps us create better products and solutions. That's the bottom line. Everyone is shaped by their own experiences and perspectives, and I think when people bring that into their work, um, they're able to challenge each other, think about problems in different ways, help people consider solutions they hadn't considered before, um, and ultimately create something that serves the diverse population that we're designing for. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Fog Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch. Segment is looking for a brand designer in San Francisco. And here at Revision Path, we're looking for a design writer. We also have job listing from indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. So whether you're into design, coding, music, or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. You can start from scratch with a new project or remix any of the available projects and make them your own. And if you get stuck on anything, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You only want to hear from the people and the businesses that you like. And MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to multidisciplinary designer Thomas Dang in Cleveland, Ohio. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am uh, Thomas Dang. I'm a graphic designer and a uh, MBA candidate at Cleveland State University. So tell me, like, what's a typical day like for you? I know we talked a little bit before recording, and you mentioned that uh, you're just now starting to pursue your MBA. Yes. Yeah, so the programs generally are developed for people that are full-time working people. So all the classes are at night. 
So I have the freedom to still work during the day, but I'm freelancing during the day. So it gives me flexibility to take time to study if need be. But in the days I'm generally working on anything between like a motion graphic project to like an email or a website or some type of print collateral. Okay. So you're working on a lot of different types of projects. Yes. Yes. What are the best types of clients for you to have? I generally look for clients that have kind of an open-mindedness to kind of go through the design process as it should be, not necessarily as like a timeline or like their, their kind of standard way of doing things is. Like I've had a lot of clients where, you know, I develop a, a level of trust initially and then I try to push the project as far as I can. And it's usually the clients that allow you to push it as far as it can go are the best clients. So when you say the design process as it should be, can you like elaborate on that a little more? Well, you, you know, you start off the way I was, you start off with your creative brief, you figure out what the design problem is and all the things that will allow you to help solve that problem. A lot of times you'll see clients that have an, an artifact in mind and it's like, well, let's back up and figure out what the need is and let's figure out what the best artifact is to fulfill that need. And so if someone says, oh, I need a, a minute and 30 second video, and it's like, well, maybe you don't need a minute and 30 second video. Maybe you just need some strategically placed web banner ads. And so anyone that's open to, you know, listening to like other alternatives to a solution mm-hmm. are like kind of your ideal clients. And that process is the one that's kind of driven by thoughtful questions and responses to to those that like really fit what the problem is. So I guess you could call that design thinking in a way. Yeah, really. I mean, it's uh we were taught like there's a pretty much standard process for kind of thinking through problems and in order to come up with solid and solutions that were were thoughtful. And we were mm-hmm. always driven in in my undergrad at Cleveland State to come up with thoughtful solutions and this is the pathway to those thoughtful solutions. And so it doesn't matter what the problem is. If you just filter it through these these steps and ask those questions and get all that information early on, you'll avoid going around in circles, wasting time with clients, doing iterations that are off strategy. And yeah, so I mean, design thinking is, is a really big part of my education. So it, it's kind of like a building block for my process. Yeah, I got you. I mean, I had my own studio for several years, and I know that a large part of that client interaction had to deal with really educating the client on what the process is. Many of them have never worked with a designer before, so they don't necessarily have any sort of a, they don't have a benchmark for what that interaction should look like. Like, for example, if you take your car to a mechanic, you sort of have a good idea of what that conversation should go like, because Maybe your friends have taken a car to a mechanic. Maybe you've taken your car to a mechanic before. Or even, honestly, just in general pop culture, you've seen those types of conversations. Whereas with a designer, it tends to be a bit of a different kind of interaction. You don't know what you're going into the conversation with, what should you know, what shouldn't you do, that sort of thing. Uh, so that education part is really important. Yeah, I find that it's... More and more, no matter what level someone is at at their business, there's still this level of education where they're so artifact oriented and they know that, oh, this business is successful and they have these 
they have flyers, so I need flyers. Or I need, and it's like, well, wait a minute, let's talk about what design is and what its function is, and let's talk about your problems. And usually they're kind of taken back by that, but it's like then they realize that you come up with something that actually positively impacts their business rather than just some like canned artifact that everyone has that may or may not have a benefit. Yeah. Tell me about your MBA program. What are you studying? It's a general MBA. So I have a background. I have a degree in psychology and people always wonder what the function is or how does that help me in design? And really marketing is just this combination of design and mark and psychology. Like, and so my, my thought is that, you know, I, I would like to study more and go really deep into marketing and the marketing curriculum now is, uh, is pretty thorough. And so it's connecting all the pieces and parts together. So a lot of the things that your account executive side would kind of say in, in a, a meeting, they would say, oh, well, this is, it's the numbers that are important, all these things. They always use business as this wall to kind of blockade designers from having access to things. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, oh, if you get the MBA, you know exactly how to maneuver around those circumstances. And there's so many things that kind of opens your eyes up to a lot of things where I've actually found that, oh, sometimes, you know, this thing isn't that important. You know, sometimes it's the strategy that's more important than the design asset. And so it's this weird balance of I'm discovering that some of my ideology has been kind of faulty in a way. And it's like, well, now knowing that I can now design in a way that's much more efficient and effective, but still true to what like design is. I like what you said about marketing being kind of the sum of design and psychology. Right now, I currently work as a marketer. But before that, I, you know, ran my own studio. I was doing design. And it's it's uh, been interesting to me to see just how much of what I learned as a designer has been helping me out with doing marketing for a company for their, you know, for their products and services. Yeah, I mean, you can see how everything ties together. And it really, it creates these extra connectors that, You're like, oh, well, I remember working on this one thing and you learn something about marketing and it just ties back and it all just integrates into this mesh of of knowledge. And it just creates this much more powerful tool than if you just only had the one. Let's go back to your time at uh, Cleveland State University. What made you want to go into psychology and then into design? Is that sort of how the how it went? I initially wanted I was always interested in psychology, but. When I I got into the program, I was entering an honors program, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted. Well, I guess to backtrack all the way, when I got into college, I was very disenfranchised with education as a whole. My middle sister got a full ride, and I I was like, oh, if she can get a full ride, I'm getting a full ride. And so I just jumped in there, and they asked me to declare a major, and I used to work on music, and I remember working with someone that was a designer, and just feeling like that job was the most like a hustle that I've ever seen, and I thought, I could do that. That's just, it's like, it's it's like hustling in the streets. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I'll just pick this design, and then as I went through the program, and I, I got acclimated to college, I thought, well, I'm actually really interested in psychology. So I picked it up as a major afterwards. And then it's a, I don't know if that's a, it's an odd backstory, I guess, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. So did you have a, an interest in doing design before you got to Cleveland State? 
I actually had no real reference to design except it was so I put out an album. I had a friend design an album insert and he asked me which fonts I wanted to use. And I thought, well, isn't that your whole job to, to pick the fonts? And then after that, I worked at a music studio as an engineer and my boss used to make flyers for rappers. And one day he said, why don't you just make these flyers? And he was charging them like 150 bucks. And it took him like a half an hour to make. And he had no experience. And I thought, how can you charge someone $150 for something you have no experience at? And then <laughs> I began making these flyers. And I'm like, what? what? This is a job? Of course. Like, I could do this. This is this is enough. So I didn't really have any understanding of what design was coming into design. And so it was like I was just a, a blank slate. And so what I actually learned what design was, was a far cry from what I was doing. So I kind of fell into design by accident. Interesting. So after you graduated from Cleveland State University, uh, kind of tell me about the early parts of your career. What sort of things were you doing? Even while I was in school, I was taking advantage of a bunch of internships and kind of entry-level positions. I had art-directed some magazines for the school. I worked on... an a separate the rec center was operated by a separate entity so i was their staff designer there i interned at cleveland public power i worked at interned at a pr firm and so i had so many opportunities and learned so much that immediately after graduating i started contracting for one of the places that i had interned at and they had connected me with other people so i actually just started freelance designing right after i got out and I did that for about a year and a half. I was very satisfied with the work, and it was very comparable to what all the other entry-level designers were making. And I was recruited by a firm, Things Remembered, because they were looking to overhaul and rebrand their company because they were going through a lot of changes, and they were looking to refresh everything. Mm -hmm. So from there, I started to get more into corporate work, and I was there for a bit, and then I moved on to... DeReese, which is a, a craft company, and I've essentially rebranded all of their product lines when I was there, and I just left DeReese to start the MBA. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've had like a wealth of different experiences that have led you to this point. Yeah, it's, and it's been very much accelerated and compacted, and so it's hard to actually pin down a narrative of how did you get from here to here. Mm -hmm. It's easier kind of to – like if you look at the body of work – you can see, oh, okay, well, this is when you started to do this, and oh, this is where you grew here and here and here. But a lot of it is all concurrent on top of each other. So it's like, oh, well, yeah, when I was redesigning the style guide for this rec center, I was working with the lead designer at Cleveland Public Power, and we overhauled the entire style guide. And so it's like, but so you're working on, I was actually working on maybe three different branding guidelines at once, and I wasn't. I was still a student. So yeah, so it's a it's a very odd collection of experiences. Yeah, you you said you sort of like fell into this. I was wondering if you had like a particular moment when you knew that this was what you wanted to do for a living. So I guess it's not that I, it's what I wanted because I'm actually, you know, saying that I'm getting an, an MBA, it's like I'll be shifting into another type of design work. But there was this moment when I realized what design was. And I look at design as it's just like this massive propaganda tool. It's like it's it's along the lines of psychology. It's all the you're convincing someone 
to think or feel about a product or service or concept the way that you want them to. And I was like, it's an interesting thing because I grew up in an urban environment and you don't have any power over your environment. And now here's a job where you're, the whole purpose is to skew and distort people's perceptions of things. It's a very interesting way to look at design as it being a, a propaganda tool. I don't think I've ever heard that before. I mean, really, what I, you know, you think about propaganda posters, but like we're all just impacting the way, like, you know, why do you use Tide over Cheer or Gain? It's the color palettes, it's the branding positioning, it's the advertising strategy, the people that are in the ads. It's not that you genuinely think that Tide is better than Cheer. Mm -hmm. And I believe they're both owned by. Procter and Gamble. <laughs> and the, the, actually, the one brand is called a flaker brand because it just is there to prevent the main company from losing market share. It's an illusion. It's not the idea of them competing is, is not real. And most of what we're doing when we're not communicating a message, mm -hmm. the other underpinning of that is we're communicating how you should feel about the message. Like, hmm. And that's what design is doing with all the elements. And, you know, it's like, you're, that's what we do. We draw people. We pull people or push people away from ideas, thoughts, or things. I actually really vibe with that. I mean, because I didn't go to design school. So my undergrad degree is in math and my, okay. my master's degree is in telecommunications management. But even, you know, after I got my math degree, I always looked at design from a very analytical standpoint. Like what were the certain fonts or colors or things that just made sense. It was more about how did it make someone feel logically as opposed to how it made someone feel emotionally. So when you're you're yeah. saying like it gives you the power to kind of skew perception in that way, I get that. I really get that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I just recently talked to someone and they asked me about creativity and they said that we don't want to interfere with your art, you know, your artistic vision. And I just, you know, my thought is that Design is less about art and it's more about, yeah, it's about logic and it's about understanding, you know, we have a core visual vocabulary, you know, and that's like, okay, well, and you know that, oh, people that associate this visual thing with this. So if I want them to feel happy, I'm going to use these colors. These fonts speak to that. If it's an animation, this style of motion appeals to that emotion. So you just collect it all and you package it up and there you have it. But it's like, it's very analytical if you use, I believe that the design thinking process creates a very analytical approach to visual communication. That's a good way to look at it. I really like that. <laughs> so based on your experiences that you've had, you know, you've talked about working in a lot of different places. I'm sure that that has allowed you to look at the design community from a lot of different viewpoints. Is there anything that you would like to see more of from the design community as a whole? Well, I can only speak to Cleveland's design community because I don't really know what's going on in the other communities. I think that there is this big push for it, like everyone feeling included and welcome. And that's just in general, like, so no matter what kind of design you do, and what level of design you do, but I don't think there's a real push for excellence. And I think for me, growing up in an urban background, it's like you have to do things to a certain level of excellence to receive any kind of recognition. I always think that 
pressing people and and evoking a sense of excellence is the standard is more important than all the other things because otherwise i mean to get a little bit off track we live in a, a market where you can easily just outsource rendering something to china or india right and, and design is moving in a way that you there, there are companies that are starting to outsource these small pieces of design work out and so everybody and a community should be aware of that and be looking to elevate their skill set to the point where we're all design thinkers, not production workers. Mm-hmm. And so when I see the community not embracing this idea of design thinking and strategic thinking and incorporating that into work, what you're doing is creating this giant opening for there to be this just giant pull of jobs into another market. And when you see people investing all this time and money and brain power into the wrong things. Like they want to figure out how to make this one thing pixel perfect or lettering is popular. So everyone wants to be a letterer. It's like the community should reinforce the idea that design thinking trumps every other skill set that you're going to have in design. Software skills can be learned on the internet, on YouTube. So if you think that's how you're going to differentiate you from another designer, you're gravely mistaken. And so, I mean, for me, that's what I've always been an advocate of continued education and things like that in the community enforcing and kind of creating environments where that's the standard and not just like an added, oh, if you want to learn more, that's great. So it sounds like you kind of have a little bit of disdain for the Cleveland design community. <laughs> Not to start I, any mess or anything, but I, I sort of picked up on that a little bit. I just think that you're not setting people up for success if you don't treat it like it's serious. Like this is how you put food on the table. Mm-hmm. And so if you are not giving people the information they need to let them know, oh, well, one day, you know, five years from now, you're not going to be able to put food on the table. It's not that I, it's like, well, I was taught that. I was taught at Cleveland State by Jim Visacchio Grady, how to think about design. Now, our Cleveland market is not just Cleveland State. And so you have other people that were taught, you know, some other things. I'm not going to talk about specific schools or anything like that. But if you come into this market and you are a decorator and not a thinker and, and no one's telling you, hey, stop decorating, start thinking, that's not for me. That's for the community as a whole and the leaders in the community to say, hey, you should probably stop decorating and start thinking. And so when the community is more focused on involvement and just kind of like let's have a mixer, it's one of those things where it's like you can see people's careers like you can see where their career is going to go. You can say, oh, well, you've boxed yourself in as like this person that does this very specific thing that is very easily outsourced and no one's telling you like, and it's, that's unfortunate. And I feel sad for those people. And I know people personally that have ended up in career paths where they're, they would make more money without a degree, just working their way up from a minimum wage job than doing design work. Hmm. I guess we can leave it at that. (laughs) It's a balance between community and the function of the community. 
you know, it's just like a neighborhood. You know, everybody can get along, but if your neighbors don't call the police when someone's robbing your house, it's like, do we really get along that well? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's important that safety is the primary function of like a, a community. Yeah. No, and that's to, that's to help people to flourish. Right. Now, you told me earlier, you know, before we started recording that you were working on becoming a polymath. Uh, and of course, you're a designer. You're also now studying to get your MBA. So, of course, you have this kind of left brain, right brain thing going on. Tell me a little bit more about that. It's interesting because it's like I've I've always been interested in making things and creating and thinking. And it's like it doesn't fit into one space. Like you can do so many different things and branch out. And it's like I've worked on, you know, I was led to design for music. And my sister has a degree in film. And so I've worked on film projects with her. And you have other people that do all these different things. And it's like, oh, you kind of want to touch a little bit of it all. And it's not instead of just diving really deep on one thing. And then, you know, you mix business in there because a lot of times if you have all these extra things, they just become hobbies. And so the thought is, well, maybe I can figure out how to monetize this. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like you have all those skill sets. And then it, it, it really just insulates you from joblessness so to speak (laughs) if i have to i can go you know fix cars or something i can do anything i can tell a joke i can write a story i would really like to get more into creative writing and i guess i mean the, the thought of it is that it's easier for you to connect with people when they can see that you do what they do and so it's like, oh, okay, well, look, we can do, you know, you work with people on projects and you can collaborate and this really enriching process when you collaborate with people and you can kind of really connect with them on the level of what, of the thing that they're passionate about and kind of being a polymath is a road to like that really inspiring and fulfilling collaborative work. Yeah. So tell me about some other projects that you've worked on. So there was one project that I I was really, really excited about, and I really got to dig into. It was at home in Africa. It was over a 300-page art catalog for an exhibition that we did at Cleveland State. Um, I have a really good relationship with a professor, Dr. Kathy Kernow. She's an Africanist and has studied in Africa for like over 10 years. And so she has all this knowledge about African art, and how it's been incorporated into Western art, especially in like fashion and things like that. And she she wanted to show what high household items look like. And so the whole book was about African art motifs in household items. And it was one of those things where I didn't know African art was so rich in like visuals. So, you know, like as I took the classes, but, you know, you study the broad strokes But going through this catalog, you know, I was tasked with making like page breaks and like a cover. And the idea was that we wanted to connect African art with Western sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, how do you appeal to a Western audience with African art motifs? And it was a very interesting problem space because usually even myself, there's a thing in African art, which is this pleasing irregularity. I love everything to be symmetrical. Like I don't want anything to be off in any way, especially if it looks like it's almost symmetrical. It bothers me. And so it was interesting to learn that this aesthetic is culturally ingrained. It's not that we as human beings, things need to be symmetrical, 
And so we did this project and I ended up laser engraving the cover out of wood and taking a photograph of the wood. And so that created a level of irregularity because the wood was naturally irregular, but I was able to make things somewhat perfectly symmetrical and you'd pull in these things. And so it was like this interesting learning opportunity for me to kind of see things beyond my personal Western perspective. And at the time when I made it, I didn't even know I had like this severely Western perspective on what was visually appealing. But it was interesting because one Black Panther came out, I actually went out to see the movie with my professor and she's saying, well, this comes from this tribe and this tribe and this tribe. And some of the stuff I, I recognized because of this book. Yeah. And I was, it was just one of those interesting things where you get to like cross back into your own culture. And then like that book was made maybe three or four years ago coming back and seeing it introduced into mass media. And so, I mean, I, I thought that was a an interesting project and then how it was mirrored today where you see these motifs actually being used. Mm-hmm. And that means that people are interested in those motifs enough to like bring them in. I mean, given the movie is about Africa. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I mean, it's a, a fictional Africa, but they had to pull the references from somewhere, you know? Well, and that's a thing because we had to have a conversation about coming to America with Eddie Murphy, how all of the things are wrong. In this movie, the art director actually took the time out to make sure that they were right. They were pulling them from an actual tribes instead of just making them up. Because I think you do see that. You see that people are like, oh, this wants to be, this is Asian influence or it's African influence. And they have these motifs that they associate in their mind, but might not necessarily be anything. Elaborate on that about coming to America, because it, it sort of meshes a little bit with what you said earlier about you know, watching Black Panther and knowing where these things come from. But you knew that because you had exposure through that particular project that you mentioned before. What were some of the things that you saw in coming to America that were just wrong? And so this is anecdotal, but the the clearest thing was the chief's palace is what I was told was just totally off. Okay. And, and so you have, it's the garb and, and this is me speaking slightly out of it because it was from the conversation I learned with my professor that black panther was very on target and other movies like coming to america were off target okay. and so i can't speak specifically but i know that their their chief's palace in that movie is nothing like a chief's palace in africa i'm curious about that because i know when i've talked with other designers here on the show generally i will ask them if they've learned anything about black designers or even about different sorts of you know, design cultures within Africa as part of their regular education. And generally they haven't. If there's anything that they've had to learn, it's been through independent study of some sort. So so I guess what's interesting about that is that this was be way beyond the curriculum because it was an exhibit. And I was actually, it was after I graduated, I was commissioned to do this book. But it was such a learning experience. And I believe a ton of the images were given by like the Smithsonian. So it, it's not for profit sale, but there's only there's like digital copies available. But no one knows that this asset exists if they were looking to create things with these African motifs, because it, it's it was just for our college. It, it wasn't for monetary gain. So there's no marketing push behind it. And it was like that was the place where I learned I learned all of these things and that one experience. And it's probably a very rare experience for someone to have after that i believe i did another book on the ayare with the same professor so it was like an extension of the education 
But, you know, it's like, where do you get that information? That information just doesn't present itself to you in curriculum. No, it's interesting. I mean, I go to different design events and we have a design museum here in Atlanta and everything. And it's always interesting to go to the bookstore and look around and not see any sorts of works, not even about other cultures in design, but, you know, from honestly, from non-white designers, it's hard to to find that information. You know, we are generally fed a more European sensibility about design. We know about the Swiss design or yes. German design or something like that. But do we know about South African design? Do we know about Kenyan design? Do we have like just a general, I don't know, weird stereotypical knowledge of what African design would look like? And when I think about that in the context of Black Panther, my hope is that that movie, at least what I'm starting to see, is that it's stoking people's creativity a little bit to learn more. Yes. Uh, you know, a, a few weeks ago, I interviewed a woman. She's a designer in Mauritius, which is a small island country in the middle of the Indian Ocean off oh. the coast of Madagascar. And she's originally from Ghana. She's studied and worked in at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts. She's worked in New York. She's done design in Paris for Christian Louboutin. And now she's in this like small African island nation. And it was interesting kind of talking to her about how and what we should know about African design and, you know, just what we need to know here in the States. Cause I, I just feel like we don't get that knowledge and it's hard to find. It's something we really have to seek out and research and find ourselves. Well, I think one of the hard things about it is that like African, I would presume the place you'd probably look first is African art historians mm-hmm. and they're very few and far between. But I guess, you know, I took an African art class or African American art class. And that's a, it's like a, a giant rabbit hole to dive into because I did a report on Willie Cole and this is my plug for Willie Cole. Cause Willie Cole is a graphic designer and he's amazing. But what he did was take, he had this massive knowledge of African art and he created these motifs using American imagery and combined them. He did a lot of things with like branding using irons because of his like connection with like uh, black house servants and the iron had the significance to him. And his mother, I believe was like a, a maid, the idea of branding. And he did all these pieces with iron branding. He did a lot of stuff where he recreated like African mask with like, shoes and other like and hair blow dryers and it's very interesting work but if you actually read his thoughts behind it there's this lush knowledge of african art and all of their visual representations so like if you dig into some of those artists that are actually pulling from that they've already done a lot of the research for you and you're like oh well this is a tribe to look into or if i'm looking for these kind of motifs whether they be like textiles you know African artists, their textiles are amazing. Got a wallet from Ghana and they're like, everyone thinks of Africa as like this dark drab, you know, like they're not colorful, but this is vibrant teal blues and oranges and they're hand woven. And it's like these patterns there. Now you've adopted this idea of pleasing regularity, but you know, it's just this very interesting, different type of artifact like and everywhere i went everywhere i lost the wallet unfortunately but everyone's like where did you get that wallet i'm like oh it's from ghana it's a textile and it's like oh some tribes have amazing textile work some have great bead work from the portuguese came over and they were trading beads so there's this culture of beadwork. 
and wood carvings and you know like yeah if you've seen black panther you've seen a lot of pieces and parts of all over africa and it's like no there's some interesting motifs that you could bring into your current visual vocabulary and kind of push the visual vocabulary i think to me that's the most interesting part of design because we have and this is an aside but we have different types of designers we have designers that are just going along with what they were taught and then we have people that are behind the times and then we have people that are pushing forward and creating what the new visual vocabulary is Mm -hmm. and that's the interesting exciting space to be in because you can make something and then you see the next generation your design aesthetic the things that you came up with the combinations you came up with become the new foundation for others and there's an opportunity to do that by incorporating different cultural motifs and different design aesthetics. Because, yeah, I rely so heavily on Swiss design in the majority of my work because it's the standard. Everything is gridded. Everything is structured. There's a simplicity in typography. And it's like, well, it gets bland. And so if that becomes the, the default is this one way of thinking – then we have this homogeny of design and we don't have the ability to express things with the nuance that more diverse cultures can. Yeah. What are some of your other influences? So I grew up in the inner city, so I'm very much influenced by hip hop, urban music. I studied karate when I was a kid, so I'm very much influenced by like The Art of War, The Book of Five Rings. I just, you know, I was just recommended to read The Prince by Machiavelli. I guess in general, what inspires me in life are those kind of things, like uh, cultural things. But does, or do you mean design wise? I'm not sure if. I mean, you know, we as designers get inspiration from a lot of different things, you know. I just meant like, are there any other types of influences since you mentioned, you know, that kind of grid design? What other influences do you have that like go into your work? What I generally try to do in my design work is try to – I know there's the people that are massively innovative. I just try to be incrementally innovative, if that makes sense. <laughs> and so I think that the easiest way to do that is when you start referencing, you become cross-disciplinary. Like I was taught in my undergrad to learn as much as you possibly could about all types of things because you never know when that's going to help you – come up with a, a novel design solution. Mm-hmm. And like, so one of the designers that I've like, I love this designer. She's in New York. Her name is Kelly Anderson. And I love her work because she does exactly that. She made a wedding invite out of, she made a record, like a vinyl record. And then she figured out a way to take a piece of the paper invite and a needle and turn that piece of paper and the needle into a record player. And it's because she hangs out around people that are just really smart, bright people that do these kind of things. And so the design solution would have never been thought of in a purely visual space. That's a engineering kind of product development idea. But one of the coolest design artifacts I've seen, and it's the coolest wedding invite I've ever seen, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, what kind of knowledge can we combine and take and mash together to come up with some new novel thing? The reason I did the book cover with laser engraving is because one of my friends is a biomedical engineer and he's interested in all these new technologies and laser engraving and 3D printing was just coming very popular in like kind of the makerspace area. And he was like, oh, the library has this laser engraver. You should check it out. 
And I'm like, okay, a laser engraver. What is that? That doesn't have really anything to do with design, but I'll check it out because it's cool. Mm-hmm. And then it just so happens that wood engravings are a big staple in like African art. So it's like, oh, you just told me about this thing that engraves with a laser, and I'm not going to physically engrave something. I combine these two ideas, and it was just the fact that I was in that space and was able to have that conversation. I was open to knowledge outside of design that I could put those two pieces together. Hmm. Do you have a dream project that you'd love to do or, or love to work on? Yeah, it's not really a design project, though, but it's a design-oriented project. Um, okay. As always interested me is being able to reach out to your community and talk about how to be successful at the thing that you're doing because, you know, it's like, oh, I already have the blueprint, you know? So I've always wanted to go back to into the urban school system and talk to people because I really do believe that skills that I developed growing up in the inner city actually have given me the edge to design in a, a much more thorough way. And I don't think people understand that because they haven't walked down that path. They don't necessarily know how to turn adversity into an advantage. Give me an example. What's really big in psychology right now is grit. And they talk about people that have high amounts of grit. And really, it's just perseverance. It's just the new ra- the buzzword for perseverance are able to succeed more so than those with less grit. And when you grow up in a very adverse environment, you have two choices to either persevere or perish. And so you have people, a whole group of people that have this level of grit that have lived without gas in the winter and they have not had electricity and they've had, they've had to do things without food and they had to like work multiple jobs or work side jobs as a kid to help provide for your household. You have the grit already. You just don't know. You don't have the task. You don't have the education to apply that grit to because once you have the grit and you have the education, then you're going to outperform everyone in your class because they don't have the determination to work through that, that creative like blockage, you know, your kind of writer's block of design Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to just push through all these things. It's like, Oh, well that's just one resource that you have. You know, also coming from an urban environment that's dangerous, you have to be very observant because you have to understand very quickly what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. And that level of observational skill, when applied to visual communication, will allow you to develop your skill set exponentially faster. Because what you see when you look at something visually is different from what someone else sees because they're looking at the gestalt of it. And just like the overview of it, I guess, you know, that's this piece of art. And what you're seeing is details because the details are important and you learn the details are important in everything. And there's nuanced differences between one thing and another. And when you can start pulling those nuances into your work because you're observant, like then your, your work, you can tell the difference between someone that is that observant and someone that is not. And so there's like this plethora of tools that you have that you can just use readily. All you have to do is be pointed into the right direction of what career path can you actually use those tools. And also it's like, as I said before, design is so, you get out of it what you put into it and it's very hustle oriented in a lot of ways. And if you've had that mentality of, I'm not going to eat if I don't work, then you don't have to learn it as an adult if you've learned it in your childhood. 
And so every single one of those things differentiates you in a positive way. And it's just, you just, once you plug those pieces together and someone that's been through it can tell you that, then you can see it. You're like, oh, wait a minute. I can do that. That is feasible. Because I just talked to a guy, I was supposed to make a logo for him for, he's, he's a rapper. And I talked to him for several hours and he said, you don't understand. I can't work in an office. And it hurt me to hear him say, this is the only thing I can do because there's such a low likeliness for him to succeed as a rapper. But it's like, you already have proven that you're creative. I heard his body of work. He's thoughtful and creative. But no one has opened his eyes to other creative fields that he could flourish in. You know, it's like, all I know is this one creative outlet. And all I know is this is the only way I get out of this situation. Mm-hmm. It's like, why aren't there more people telling the youth, hey, you've already had these skill sets. You're already interested in being creative. Why don't you take this path instead of that path? Because this path leads to a very comfortable middle class lifestyle. And this one leads to a bunch of broken dreams. And so, I mean, the ability to speak to people and talk about those points, that would probably be the dream job for me. Yeah. Yeah. There's that saying about how you can't be what you don't see. So being able to kind of expose, I think you're at a young age, but even, you know, as as old as high school to know that this is a a path or an option that they can take is really, really important. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things, too, where it's like. It's important for someone to see that you can do it without necessarily totally compromising who you are. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you get that thing where people, I mean, when I grew up and people would come to our schools and talk to us, we're like, oh, you're only successful because you're a sellout. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a nice thing to think, but that's what we all thought and said. And it's like, I'm from there. I went through it and I go through, I'm the same exact person I was then, except more knowledgeable and just just a little bit more aware of how to approach certain situations. Mm -hmm. But that whole idea of, and you know, that's why it's also important for me personally to go and take my work to such an extreme and always make sure it's the best I think it could be. Because it's like when you come back and you say, this is my work and this is what I've done and this is what you can do. If they're not impressed by what you're doing, they're not going to listen to you. They're like, Oh man, you make annual report brochures. That's corny. <laughs> oh, I'm not doing no annual report, bro. It's like, but no, look what you get. Like, see, look, you can do take the same exact project and they be like, yo, that's lit. Like, you did that? You got paid to do that? And you get into things like motion graphics where the polish on motion graphics and everything about it is just appealing overall. It's like, you can do that for a living and make what? And it's like, yeah, you can. And you don't have to work in an office the same way. Like you're, a creative office is so much different from your nine to five, you know, typing at your computer and filing paperwork. And it's like, oh, well, now you see it, you know, explore if it'll actually work for you. And I think that I'll, it would actually work for a lot of, of urban youth. I, I do have one other thought about that, which is which people don't realize is um. When you make music and you learn how to make music, everything is on a timeline. Mm -hmm. And when you understand how to work that timeline and how everything falls on that timeline and you put layers into it, it makes doing things like videography and motion graphics easy because the hardest part to understand about those disciplines is time. Because people generally are trying to design flat, static things and then just throw it on a timeline and magically it turns into an animation. 
it's like once you've already worked on a timeline before, you know, I was an engineer in a music studio and it's like, oh, this audio software, I can see the pieces and parts on the timeline and how to manipulate the timeline. I think motion graphics were, were one of the easiest things to pick up as far as understanding how a graphic relates to time versus other people that never had that experience. What advice has really stuck with you over the years? It's funny, my friend Audra, because I, I dropped out of high school, which is a, but because I was having some hard times with uh, just, you know, life. Mm-hmm. And she told me, Thomas, you have to be in the system to get around the system. And she told me this when she was like in 10th grade. And this idea stuck with me for so long. And I was like, wow, this is some wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Like And, I, you know, it took me some time to get it. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, yeah, you really, even if your goal is to get around the system, you still have to be in the system. And I was like, oh, all right, Audra. Ironically, she was also multiracial and half black. And so <laughs> it really resonated with me because of that, too. Because I, at the time, I was trying to be so real, but not real, so to speak. Just like, oh, I'm from the streets. Y'all don't understand. Y'all blah, blah, blah. She's like, no, you got to be in the system to get around the system. and. It's like you're not going to be able to flourish by rejecting the system as a whole. You have to figure out what parts of it can work for you and what can't. Is there anything that you regret in your career or in your life? Is there anything you regret not doing due to fear? No, because, I mean, not to be like boastful. I I grew up in the street. You have to learn how to live without fear. If I grew up where people were like, we're going to murder you. And you have to walk the streets and think, oh, if I see them, they're going to try to murder me. Like, they're actually going to shoot me and murder me. I don't, you know, just because they have it. If I'm not afraid to die, why would I be afraid to take a risk on a design element? Like, oh, I I really wanted to add this graphic, but they were going to tell me no. It's like, well, all you can do is tell me no. Just take every risk. It's one thing to be stupid about taking risks. But if it's a calculated risk, you always take the risk because you can't afford not to take the risk. Because your growth and development as an individual and a professional will be stunted at every single risk that you don't take. And when you look back and say, oh, man, I wish I would have done that. It's like it doesn't hurt anyone but you, you know, like especially if you're if you're working not as a freelance designer or a professional, you can take that risk because you're not on the clock. You know, you could say I'm going to work two extra hours or I have this job security. They're not going to be mad at me. As a freelancer, sometimes it's like, well, if I do this thing that takes 10 extra hours and I'm billing you hourly, you're going to be upset. So I just have to draw a sketch or get buy-in before I do it. But, you know, take the risk. What is there to fear? You know, nothing's going to happen. Like nothing. Someone's going to be mad. Like if you're like, oh, if my boss's boss seen this, their minds would change about this thing. Is your boss going to be mad that, you know, you showed someone a thing? It doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, if it's your best, you do your best work and you put your best work in front of the people that are most influential. Part of that I got from Paula Cher, who I believe said you need a patron in your institution, especially if they are above the people that are stopping you from getting your work pushed through. And, you know, and if Paula Cher can do it, (laughs) I can do it. And if anyone says anything, I'm like, Paula Cher told me to do this. So, you know, pentagram, you can't argue with pentagram. (laughs) Where do you see yourself in the next five years? 
Is there anything like in particular you'd like to be doing or working on? Beyond the outreach component, I do think that there's a space because I have a music background that digital streaming companies are the future of record companies. And I would love to be somewhere as an A&R creative director on one of those streaming services. I know what's going to happen. Spotify's talked about starting a record company. I mean, SoundCloud is in danger, but if they don't, that would be a giant boon to them. And it's like, I would love to take the business knowledge, the design knowledge and the music knowledge and be able to combine it in one place. And music is probably the best place. And on top of that, that's the best for me, for my opinion, the best way to speak to youth, like urban youth. Like if you put it in a song, they will listen to it. If you're involved in the record industry, they will listen to you. And so it it combines those two ideas of I would like to communicate this thing to the youth and I would like to combine all of my skill sets. So having a position of that nature would allow me to achieve basically all of those goals in one shot. So, I mean, that's my thought on that. And I think that um, hopefully things don't move so fast that by the time I get my MBA, all the positions are taken up. (laughs) Well, Thomas, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can find my work on dangcle.com. If you didn't know I'm from Cleveland, that you now know from the website. Instagram handle is also dangclee. That's about it. Yeah, and Behance. So Behance. But everything on the website's on Behance. Okay. Cool. Well, Thomas Dang, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing, you know, really, you know, we talked a good bit before we started recording for people that are listening. And, uh, you know, Thomas definitely has a lot of things to say. He definitely has a lot of uh, <laughs> of strong opinions and a lot of, of fire. And I think that, you know, a lot of what you said with coming from the background that you came from and being able to channel that constructively and positively into doing great design work and even to branch out into other fields, you know, doing some stuff with music, doing some stuff with, with psychology. I think that you are, are well on your way to becoming that polymath that you want to be. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Thomas Dang and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Thomas and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? Everything that Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. 
That's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. And it helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts there. Plus, I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.